Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 37, the Slater Jiver edition. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. The theme of this week's podcast is disaster movies, whether we're talking about traditional disaster movies like San Andreas or the recent films of Cameron Crowe. Boom! <laughs> First up, the release of San Andreas, in which an earthquake wipes out much of Los Angeles, returns us to the issue of ethics and entertainment. What's the fun of mass catastrophe? Then we turn to the declining fortunes of Cameron Crowe, a once-beloved filmmaker whose career has recently hit the skids. Our game this week is Double Vision, in which I ask our contestants to distinguish between the Joe Esterhaas sexy thriller Sliver and the Joe Esterhaas sexy thriller Jade. Then we wrap it up, as always, with our quick-fire recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. San Andreas comes out this week, and with it the weird ritual of watching our deepest fears of mass catastrophe played as mass entertainment. In the case of San Andreas, that fear is the common worry that the big one will hit California and a chunk of the state will peel off into the ocean. But the disaster movie as a subgenre is not new. Popularized in the 70s by Irwin Allen productions like The Poseidon Adventure, Earthquake, and The Towering Inferno, We've seen an effects-driven renaissance of titles like Armageddon and Deep Impact, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, and Knowing. And with each film, I find myself asking why. What is our perverse interest in seeing a mass death event unfold as entertainment? Or maybe I should just stop worrying and love the apocalypse. Joining me to talk about it are... Tasha Robinson. And... Genevieve the Hurricane Kasky. (laughs) Really, the hurricane. Uh, I will keep that in mind All for right. show notes. Uh, I'm going to hide under this table since there's a hurricane at the table. Okay, so I'm the rock, and one of you is Carla Gugino. And okay, we, we were discussing this scenario earlier, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll get to. I think we actually have our own thoughts about uh, being involved in real world disasters that we'll save till later. So uh, what I want to know now is. Uh, you know, talk me off the ledge. Uh, you know, I once made the case that the trailer for 2012 was more unsettling than any of my beloved extreme horror movies. Uh, tell me why I'm wrong. I think it's interesting that you compare them to horror movies because for me, someone who cannot take like 90% of horror movies, I think I process disaster movies the way a lot of people process horror movies. Like I sort of like being scared by these terrifying outlandish worst case scenarios. So it's it's the terror without the gore and the jump scares, which is what keeps me away from a, a lot of horror. So that's, personally, I would prefer a disaster movie to an extreme horror movie. Without the spooky music either, that that deliberate building of tension, you don't really get in something like, you know, Into the Storm or 2012 or whatever, you get the exciting action adventure music because mm-hmm. it's, you know, are they going to, is the plane going to go down? Is the firestorm going to consume them? But it's not what unknown thing is sneaking up behind them. Right. Like there's no, there's no playing on the unknown, except you don't know how bad it's going to be, but there's no, there's no playing on the, we don't know what coming to get us well here's the argument that i would make here's the counter argument which is that the thing about extreme horror movies or whatever torture porn or whatever you want to call them we want to call that, it torture porn okay is that is that in movies like that you really um uh they're really affecting or gross or horrible or whatever you want to call them because uh you really feel in a, on a visceral level uh what it is like to be to be hurt and mm-hmm. And whatever, what it's like for a life, one life, one life to be uh, lost. Whereas in movies like 2012 and presumably San Andreas, you have 
hundreds of thousands of people sort of just digitally and bloodlessly just getting wiped out. And it just seems to me, you know, ethically speaking, that seems like a little queasier to me than than something where a li- life actually seems to matter. Really? I mean, I, I think it's entirely the other way around. Like with a torture porn film, you're being asked to identify with somebody who's getting needles in the eyes in the case of one of your personal favorite films. I don't or, remember that one. Kira, 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 okay, kira. that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're being asked to identify with somebody who, as you say, is, is personally, viscerally undergoing slow horror. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you feel that. But when 100,000 people are washed away by a flood, it stops being about people. I mean, looking at the trailer for San Andreas, one of the things that struck me most about it was the feeling that I was not being asked to identify with the people dying in that scenario. I was being asked to identify with the city, the, like the city as a whole mm-hmm. that's being washed away. And it becomes much more about the the effects and how effective the effects are, what you're seeing as obliteration on a, a large scale, and much less about the human cost. And I understand why you're saying that's an ethical issue, but at some point it stops being about the people at all, and those people stop being people. I mean, obviously, if this was a real-world scenario, it would be horrible to say, you know, the victims of Tibet, you know, the Tibet earthquake don't matter because there were so many of them. But in a cinematic landscape... The difference between you're choosing to watch this one person, you know, be cut or burned or raped or whatever, versus you're trying to face a larger fear about our lack of control in a a large scale environment. I I just think that they're very different things, just in terms of like whether they engage with humanity as humanity at all. Yeah, I kind of I kind of think of disaster movies as being cut from the same cloth as monster movies, um, like like Godzilla or something, because you know, like Godzilla, Mother Nature is this unstoppable beast. You know, you can't do anything; you can only get out of the way. But it's even more terrifying because usually that monster is stopped. Whereas disaster movies, it's almost always just about riding it out and seeing who's left at the end. And I think maybe that is uh, maybe where some of that terror comes from is knowing that you can't really do anything to stop this, uh, you know, and in most cases can't predict it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, most most disaster movies are about survival. And in theory, you're pulling for the people in the Poseidon Adventure or the Towering Inferno or whatever. Mm-hmm. Even if the, the film presents them as bad people, you're still theoretically pulling for them to escape. Whereas in a torture porn film, so many of those movies are shot as though what you're really hoping for is for things to get worse. You're hoping for these horrible people to be wiped out. You know, they're presented, they are, they're all given the loser edit where they're presented as awful people. But when you're watching something like the Hostel movies, you're almost rooting for, like, how ugly can this get? You're rooting for an extreme experience. Whereas... I guess I already made this point, but I I think it's just, it comes down to the difference between what you're supposed to want, whether that's how people actually engage with the stories or not, I think is different. But I I think one of the differences, and if you're going to compare it to something like a monster movie, is that, uh, is that movies like San Andreas or The Day After Tomorrow or 2012 are trying to, are like simulations, are like running through certain, um, potentially plausible mass catastrophe scenarios whereas you know Godzilla 
has that is one stop removed because it's you know it's a it's metaphor or something like that. I mean, it's a metaphor. You for, don't know that it, Godzilla isn't real. Okay, well, <laughs> and Godzilla is no more real than like the the fire nados going on in Into the Storm, for instance. I mean, so many disaster movies are so ridiculously implausible. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal being chased down the hallway by cold in the day after tomorrow. Right, but I mean, it's stuff like that. I mean, it's the same kind of fantasy. It's just a fantasy that's being sort of wink wink presented as reality, as opposed to Godzilla, which everybody knows is fantasy. Yeah, and I, I do think that digital effects have, I, I think you think digital effects have made disaster movies more problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who's generally a fan of disaster movies, I think they've actually made them more appealing mm-hmm. because there's that extra level of remove, knowing that it's all just pixels on screen. And and obviously pre-CGI disaster movies had their own sort of you know movie trickery going on. They weren't really killing people with tornadoes. But CGI has made it possible to create destruction on such a, such a massive improbable scale, like mm-hmm. Your, your fire nados or your you know cold chasing you down the hall that it's simultaneously more realistic visually and less believable conceptually it's it's just easier for me to disassociate and process it the way you would like a theme park ride or a roller coaster well I think that's really almost primary my primary ob- objection is is that it is easy to dissociate <laughs> is that it e- is easy to, t- to to say oh well there goes an entire city well, uh, and not and not feel it you know I, I mean I, I, that's the you know and it, it, I just find it kind of you know when it when it hews so closely to something that could potentially happen and I honestly do think you know I mean the, you know the big one is something that we fear you know the uh, the effects of global warming is something that we're feeling now and we're we certainly feel that that tipping over into something uh, apocalyptic. I mean, that that not feeling that um, is is weird to me, uh, and it's especially weird to me to see uh, to see it presented as fun, as see, like I'm, a fun I'm, time of the movies. I'm not saying it makes it more appealing to see that. I'm saying it it makes it it, it taps into those fears more readily, and because it uh, it can take it to that such extreme level. It's easier to enjoy that fear without getting into it and not feeling totally like you're going to die any any minute. And again, that kind of goes back to the horror movie scenario for me. It's like, well, you know, I could be abducted by a serial killer and tortured in a basement, but I'm probably not going to be. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go through my life uh, worrying that that's going to happen the same way, you know, I could, you know, we, we, we live in Chicago and we're fairly insulated from most natural disasters here, but we also live on the New Madrid fault line. The, you know, the big one could be here, mm-hmm. but it's a level of fear that I can't incorporate into my everyday life. Is this a matter of like, you know, is it reassuring for people to see these things? Is it almost like, you know, uh, see purging some sort of demon or something of just, uh, of actually, of actually just taking this 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 nightmare scenario and visualizing it is there something kind of like uh cathartic about that as a movie as a moviegoer uh, what's the appeal i guess is my uh, i guess we, we've kind of gone over that a little bit but uh, i'm still a little mystified i mean i i think disaster movies are at heart more about less about the dread and more about the excitement you know whether you're seeing uh, uh some sort of towering inferno where a building <laughs> is going up in flames or watching california slide into the sea i think the effects have always been more of the focus than like the cathartic processing like towering 
during Inferno, uh, you know, you can joke about Sharknado not being a very plausible uh, disaster that <laughs> yes. we might live through, but Towering Inferno is itself not <laughs> that plausible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's basically they built the Titanic. They built they built the vertical Titanic. We built a, a skyscraper that couldn't possibly burn down, and now it's burning down. I mean, it's uh, none of these things strike me as that much about processing. And I'm not sure that they ever were that much about processing. They're all, you know, horror films and science fiction films about the future and this essay that I just wrote and uh, disaster movies are all in some way about processing the loss of control. But processing the loss of control in a way that you can really connect with in a way that, that matters for you, I'm not sure that these films ever were quite there. I feel like there is a very small amount of processing in the way uh, producers are now kind of trying to tap into like less Armageddon and deep impact and more like actual natural disasters that we're causing and that we're seeing. If anything, I feel like we're moving more in the direction of plausibility with, mm -hmm. with recent disaster movies. We're moving more in the direction of, you know, things that we have seen in the news and know to be true than we were back in like Towering Inferno or like Poseidon Adventure is maybe a thing that can happen. But far more people live in California on the fault line then go on cruises every year and risk getting flipped over by a rogue wave let me ask you this question then does does, does scale matter uh you know you're talking about into the storm yeah you know that's that's not a lot of people some people but like but but uh san andreas uh 2012 i mean this that's 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 a whole nother ball of wax i mean does it does it matter uh, in terms of like the way you process these movies it, it does matter to me but I, I i think in the inverse of how you're implying it, it it should matter like i think anytime you're dealing with a global disaster like day after tomorrow 2012 it's maybe a little easier to disassociate with that than a more localized disaster with something like you know into the storm where it's just this one specific region that gets blasted by tornadoes because we see every every year or so you know one specific region get blasted by tornadoes you know it's it's a little harder to buy one sweeping event that is going to take out all of humanity uh you, or you know where something like day after tomorrow or 2012 where <clears throat> related events are happening simultaneously around the world like that just doesn't mesh with how we know the world works but a superstorm battering the midwest that's perfectly plausible hmm. Um, so let's let's run some real world scenarios here. Mm -hmm. this, this is we're not talking about movies anymore. Uh, let, let's say what's the name of that fault line we're on, Genevieve? The New Madrid. So let's say the New Madrid. Don't, if, if you don't know about it, don't look it up because you will not sleep. Really? Well, I, don't, I think I know New Madrid is like a Uncle Tupelo song. Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, so it's like, probably a lot more. Don't look that than, up. You no, won't sleep. Yeah, you won't look up. That's a good. That's actually don't listen pretty to that good. Song, uh, you won't I think sleep. it's one of Tweety's. Anyway, so. Uh, Let's let's let's. Uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? The, 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 you know, a San Andreas type situation, or San Andreas, as it were, uh, a San Andreas type of situation happens here in the city of Chicago. What are you doing? What, 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 are, what are, you, are you? Are you the Rock? Or are you are you uh, getting rolled over? I mean, I mean, I've seen enough movies to know that I am not the Rock, and and I am almost certainly, you know, the person trapped in her car, uh, you know, sobbing when the you know big wave comes toward her or whatever. Like, I'm. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm probably just, you know, going to go on a hilltop and wait for it to happen because, you know, that's what I take away from these disaster movies is unless you are the star of this disaster movie, you are not uh, not surviving this. Wow. 
I always used to joke, like, I I have friends who would actually run zombie apocalypse scenarios and be like... Zombie apocalypse is an entirely different thing. I I I have a plan. I I have a plan for that. (laughs) Well, that's just it. My friends have have plans for the zombie apocalypse. They they actually know the piece of land that they're going to, like, owned by a friend's father. They know where to get weapons. They, there's like a whole routine for who picks up who. I always said that my role in the zombie apocalypse would be the one to, that gets bitten and then hides it until it's too late. Like, I have no real illusions about my ability to survive a a large-scale disaster and in something like this like if if we knew that an earthquake was coming and that Chicago was going to be obliterated I don't think I would go out of my way to get to some place unsafe in hopes of dying quickly and painlessly uh, but I certainly don't rate myself as uh, as the John Cusack like leaping into the plane and flying yeah. it I've I also have just I've read and seen way too many of these stories to be at all happy about the idea of like dying slowly of of starvation or poisoned water or being raped to death by a a bunch of bikers who have donned (laughs) Mad Max gear and gone completely crazy on Chicago, whatever. Like none of that, none of that living after the apocalypse thing seems all that appealing to me. The one thing that I do think a lot of disaster movies tap into that, you know, would, would be a concern of mine is, you know, locating and uh, reaching your loved ones, Mm -hmm. you, you know, whether it's one last time or to save them, like, you know, no one really wants to die alone. So, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of disaster movies with your your hero who's trying to rescue people is kind of predicated on that idea that no one wants to be the one who's just sucked up into into a tornado and no one sees it happen or, or is there to care. Hmm. So, you know, I... I, hopefully the phones would be working. I'd be able to call my mom and boyfriend before the, oh. the, the, the rogue wave took me out or whatever. Well, here, here's the deal with me. Okay, helicopter's taking off. I'm grabbing. I'm grabbing <laughs> the bottom of it. I got. I got. I got my wife and two kids, kind of like hanging onto my legs. So that's why you flying. do so much upper body exercises. Oh, yeah. Well, at that's your the desk. thing about parenting is that is that just carrying the, these these kids around all the time. You get a lot of upper body strength, which is very helpful for escaping an apocalyptic situation in a helicopter. And going for a fun helicopter ride. And going for a fun helicopter ride. So that's my thing. Uh, so you, you all can do whatever you're going to do. Uh, so anyway, Genevieve and Tasha, thank you very much. This segment was a disaster. <laughs> There's a difference between a failure and a fiasco. A failure is simply the non-presence of success. Any fool can accomplish failure. But a fiasco? A fiasco is a disaster of mythic proportions. That's the opening narration from Cameron Crowe's Elizabethtown, and it's acted as a kind of curse for that film and the films he's directed since, We Bought a Zoo and Aloha. Aloha comes out this week, so perhaps it will defy the bad buzz that's been surrounding it since the Sony email leak, but we thought it would be a good time to assess the highs and lows of Crow's career as a filmmaker. What happened to the guy who made Say Anything and Almost Famous? Did he change or did we? Joining me to talk about it is... Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson. Rachel Handler. Uh, uh, All right, so let's start with a basic question. Tasha, uh, what, what are some of Cameron Crow's defining traits as a filmmaker? Well, I think one of them, and possibly the most uh, noticeable one, is his sentimentality, his his strong sentimental streak. He has a tendency to make films about uh, sort of straight, middle-class, white men in a point of emotional crisis. And the answer to their emotional crisis uh, often comes in the form of like rediscovering their heart, often through a woman, um, and some sometimes through like different forms of art or like reassessing their value systems. But 
but at heart, it's always kind of about that, that experience of, I have failed in some way or life has failed me. Um, the world is not what I hoped it would be in some way. And I have to kind of refine myself. He kind of goes back to that story over and over. And I think as time wears on, his take on these stories is becoming more and more noticeably sentimental, um, more and more about the the deep-seated well of emotion that comes from things like, you know, family and, and cute animals in the case of we, we bought a zoo. So, I mean, there are other things, uh, certainly his, you know, his love of music, his love of reflective surfaces, uh, his love of characters who prevail over some kind of cynicism in their life, either from people who don't believe in them or from their inability to believe in themselves. Uh, but that for me is kind of just what defines him. But you say sentimentality, and I, I say sincerity, I guess, maybe. Uh, I, I mean, um, that's what I, I, I always feel like even at his most movie-ish moments, he's, he's and even in the movies that don't work as well. I think Cameron Crowe's coming, you know, it's, it's always kind of, it's always one from the heart from him. Even when We Bought a Zoo, which feels like the least Cameron crowe movie that he made, um, there's a lot of Cameron Crowe stuff in there. Uh, and by which I mean, everything you're talking about. Uh, but also, I, I think, I, I don't really ever feel like he's being manipulative. And that's what, when you say sentimentality, that tends to be what I think of. I certainly think he's manipulative, but he would agree with you. Um, I was just reading a piece about him in IndieWire that came out around the time of We Bought a Zoo, and he talks extensively about how his films are sentimental, but it's okay because it's the right kind of sentimentality, and how he has an internal Geiger counter that says this is the good sentimentality and this is the bad sentimentality. And uh, one of the things he said he was constantly saying on the set of We Bought a Zoo was, let's not be the people with a tin cup out for emotion. No, let's just be real. That movie, uh, to me, there's nothing real about that movie. And I could feel the tin cup rattling at, in practically every scene. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought, I, thought, I thought you were going to say one of the things he kept saying on the set was, ah, look out, lions. <laughs> but, but maybe not. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What, what is your experience with his work? Um, well, I think you're both right. I mean, I think his early work is very sincere and it works. And then his later work is very sentimental and it doesn't. And I think what changed is that he sort of crossed that line somehow. I don't know. I, I don't think that we've changed. I think he's changed 100%. And I think something to do with success, something to do with maybe a little lack of self-awareness or maybe too much self-awareness. My, I mean, my personal experience, Almost Famous is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's one of the first movies I saw that really taught me to love movies. Um, I remember walking into my parents watching it uh, during, and it was right in the middle of the airplane uh, scene, and I was just totally blown away. And, um, you know, I, I still, you know, every time I watch it, I cry hysterically. I just love it so much. I just identify with William so much. And I, I remember I, I identify with Penny Lane, and I used to tell that to my older, very old grandpa. And one time he told me, well, she's a slut. And I cried <laughs> for like 10 days. <laughs> That's sort of my initial experience with Cameron Crowe. That's so, funny. My, I mean, one of one of my strongest experiences with Cameron Crowe is uh, "Say Anything" being one of the first movies I think that really brought home to me that there were going to be films that people had a deep emotional connection to that just weren't going to touch me much at all because I couldn't relate to the man, the the central male character. Like that film is so much about Lloyd Dobler's experience, and to me, at least, so little about anybody else around him. And I just I couldn't engage that much with the question of whether he ends up with this girl who may or may not that may or may not be the best thing for either of them really well but what, but what about the, the whole John Mahoney uh, angle of the movie that I think that's almost what makes it so one of the things that makes it so special is is that you have this uh, subplot that that uh, has uh, a, 
a, a bearing on that the central relationship between Ioni Sky and, and John Cusack. But then I, I think that it's such a fully fleshed out thing. This this uh, father who she admires, who's such a important figure in, in her life, and uh, you know he's he's. Uh, complicated and a little bit nefarious uh i just i felt like that like that added a lot to it it, it was it didn't, the, the whole thing didn't seem so centered on john cusack as, as as much as you seem to suggest i would say yeah it just for me it doesn't it doesn't connect enough with her feelings about their relationship so much as it connects with with mahoney's character and with lloyd dobler's character there were just there were so many movies around the time you know john hughes and and otherwise um that kind of centered on like a girl caught between two different guys who represented two different poles in her life, but it wasn't really about her or her choices. It was about the guys. And this for me kind of falls into that, that spectrum. Now I am saying this as somebody who has only seen the movie, only saw the movie when it came out and hasn't revisited it. So I'm definitely saying it, saying this as somebody who, a has old memories of it that date back to a particular time in my life, and I probably would relate to it very differently now. All of this does kind of tie into Cameron Crowe and how he seems to to touch particular people at particular times by evoking particular stages of life. So, you know, if I went back and uh, and watched it again, I would probably relate to it very differently now. I do think that the fact that that movie boils down so much to that iconic moment with the boombox, that that's what people remember about it, is kind of significant because that seems to happen a lot with his movies. He has one moment of pure emotion and it becomes a little difficult sometimes to remember how complicated the films he builds around them are. Yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing that I, that I don't think anyone mentioned when talking about his traits as a filmmaker is the grand gesture, because <laughs> that is definitely something that is present at the boombox and say anything... Um, uh, you know, the I think some of the uh, a lot of the things in uh, Jerry Maguire. There's certainly certainly some pretty big uh, moments in that. In that the movie. leap of faith in Vanilla Sky. Right, right. Yeah, he uh, he does like uh, and almost famous has those too. I mean, he really is. You know, I, I mean, to me, I find it when it works really affecting because mm-hmm. it's just it's so uh uh i i do I, I don't question his sincerity ever really i don't think mm. he's that i don't think he's a cynical f- person or cynical filmmaker at all i mean though i still haven't seen we bought a zoo <laughs> maybe that would change yeah, that might, might but change. Like, it's not, i don't think it's cynical i, I don't want to argue about we bought a zoo all day because i don't even like the movie but, yeah. <laughs> but it's, i don't think it's a cynical film but it'd be like so even something like elizabeth town i mean you could certainly make a lot of arguments for why that film doesn't work but one of those arguments for me is not that it's insincere it's almost like it's too too sincere and that it's too um there's just too much in there. There's no sculpting of that vision. It's just a big, big slab of movie. It's, which is why I, I, I like it more than most people. I, I don't know. It, it actually, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, a obviously imperfect film in many ways, um, but it still worked for me. I mean, I, I cared about those characters, even if, you know, Orlando Bloom was not the ideal lead performance, you know, lead uh, actor there. Are getting skeptical looks from uh, Genevieve? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I still cared what happened to him anyway, and, and sort of the uh, the quality of the filmmaking there was was quite high, and there's some funny stuff in the margins of that movie, so I, I, don't, I don't hate Elizabeth Town the way people hate Elizabeth Town. I actually was going to ask you, Rachel, what was your kind of uh, moment when when uh, the, the, milk, uh, the milk turned with uh, Cameron Crowe. Was that it, Elizabeth Town? It was Elizabeth Town. Yeah. And I think to me, it, it, I watched it thinking, wow, like somebody said, you know, too many people told him that he was good at these sort of like 
you know, sincere white male stories about yeah. men finding themselves. And then he took that to that, his, its logical extreme and kind of blew it up. Like, you know, he almost, it's almost like he got drunk on his own Kool-Aid and, you know, just sort of, just sort of blew the whole thing. You know, it just felt, it just didn't feel, I didn't really feel anything at, during that movie. And it just compared to Almost Famous, which I felt so much. It was the first time movie also where I was like, wow, I'm really tired of like white men and their problems <laughs> <laughs> as a movie, you know, that, but I didn't notice that in Almost Famous and I didn't notice that and say anything, you know, because the story was so good. So, yeah. You know, but again, Elizabethtown has, I think that, 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 um, sort of all night phone conversation. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful, true scene. And, you know, and it just, it has those, those, those bits in it that kind of make me eternally hopeful for his work. But, uh, but the, there's one thing I kind of want to get into a little bit here, which is, which is, has to do with the coolness or uncoolness of Cameron Crowe. Cause it really seems like at this point in his career, he is the uncoolest filmmaker, uh, around. Uh, uh and I wonder if that, if his, if that reputation, in part, is just some sort of leftover resentment for when he was a music writer, and he had that same reputation as as being kind of a softy who would write these write these pro you know these profiles, these puff pieces, I guess, for Rolling Stone that people thought uh, were not any good. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's because uh, of everything we've just said. I mean, whether you read what he does as a uh, pandering sentiment or, or aching sincerity, neither of those things is cool. You know, uh, cool has always been about like removed and, and disaffected and knowledgeable and, and tied into a scene, but not necessarily part of it. And that, I mean, that I feel like plays a little in Almost Famous, although there's so much about, you know, how, how scene adjacent he is, how close he is to this experience and I mean that's I think uh, a really compelling thing that people have felt a lot that that sense of like I'm I'm close to being cool but I'm not quite cool but then you get into something like well for me Elizabeth Town or We Bought a Zoo and those movies are just so openly like gushingly sentimental whether again whichever way you read them they're not cool because they're they're emotional they're openly emotional in like big expressive explosive ways and and that's it's that's not cool. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's the antithesis of the concept of cool. I think as Americans read it. Yeah, maybe the defining thing is is the tiny dancer scene in Almost Famous because I I think even at the height of his popularity, Elton John was never cool, but. Elton John's awesome. That song's amazing, and 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 it kind of beat you know wins over all these people who are trying to be cool, who kind of fashion themselves as cool because it just kind of it breaks through all those defenses. And maybe you know when when Crow works, I think that's what he does too. Yeah, I mean, and uh, so I, I hope Aloha is a movie in which we say hello to the old Cameron Crow <laughs> rather than goodbye. It to can be both the, things to Scott. the new Cameron Crow. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining me, Keith, uh, Tasha, Rachel. The game this week is Double Vision, in which I take two very similar movies and ask you to tell them apart. The movies this week are Sliver and Jade, two <laughs> sexy thrillers written by Joe Esterhaz and the years following the smash success of Basic Instinct, also scripted by Esterhaz and directed by Paul Verhoeven. Though neither Sliver nor Jade caught fire with the public, I feel confident that all of you remember every single thing about them. Joining me are... Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson. Rachel Handler. All right, everybody. Are you ready? This is, the, this is not a buzzer game. This is going to be very nice and casual. I'm gonna go, we're going to go in an, an order. 
This is um, exciting though. We've been we've literally been waiting for this one since you came up I with know. a double vision idea like very early. In the I, I, I hope this pay, pays off. I, uh, warning that this will this will uh, get us the explicit rating. So, okay, so I have here a a gaming lunchbox. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill Lunchbox than I'm working from. Let's see if that works better than a hat. Uh, first question is to you, Keith. I draw randomly from the thing. Okay. This film earned Golden Raspberry nominees for its screenplay and its star, but had the fortune or misfortune of coming out the same year as Showgirls. Uh, that would be Jade. That would be Jade. Put him on the board. Can't, can't beat Showgirls that year. Uh, Tasha, random question to you. Which movie made more money, Jade, Sliver, or Body of Evidence with Madonna? Oh, that's a that's a hard one. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Silence. How how many how many hours do I have to consider this? Jade, <laughs> Sliver, or Body of Evidence? What, what what is what's the hit? What's the hit there? Relative. What's the, le- <laughs> what's the less speaking. What's the less disastrous? I'm gonna go with Jade. That is that is wrong. That made less than than any of those three. Uh, Sliver by far. The hit with thirty six point three million, Body of Evidence made thirteen million, incredibly, and Jade made less than ten. All right, we're moving on to you, Rachel. How how well do you know these films? So well. <laughs> <laughs> well, good good for you. Um, here's the question for you: The money scene in this film involves some shenanigans under the table at a nice restaurant. Shenanigans. <laughs> that's my that's my uh, newlywed game term. Is that how we're gonna gonna win the 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 explicit rating this? Uh, this oh week? no, we're gonna get, we're, things are gonna get a little rough soon. Uh, Jade. No, oh. Sliver. Very I suggestive. Sworn I remember that scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> out in public. <laughs> God, it's so bad. So so do we? We only have Keith is uh, leading. He's got one. Everyone else is blanked. All right, this is this is gonna this is gonna test your casting knowledge, Keith. I'm going to give you the name of six actors. Match the pairs to the movie and leave the other two out. See what I'm saying? Okay. Okay. I'll try. William Baldwin, Willem Dafoe, David Caruso, Sean Young, Linda Fiorentino, Sharon Stone. Wait, I, I'm... But wait, I, oh... Match so the I, pairs to is, the movie. This is very involved. Okay. I'm going to need you to repeat these things. But all right. So William Baldwin and Sharon Stone are sliver. Correct. The David, wait, what? Read me the other Willem one. Dafoe, right. David Caruso, yeah. Sean Young, Linda Fiorentino. Oh, wow, well, that's easy. That, that, that David Caruso and Linda Fiorentino. That's right. Are the stars on the board. Two. But were Willem Dafoe and who was the other one? Uh, the other one was Sean Young. Were they ever in, the in any movie together? together? No. Okay. No. I was, I was still thinking Body of Evidence with Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe and Madonna, huh? If I were to... <laughs> Sexy. Were to, hold on. Reader challenge or listener challenge. Proof Scott wrong. Or put, put, go into the IMDb and see if those two were ever in a movie together. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that, that's, uh, that's for you to do at home. This is for Tasha. Tasha, this is a quote. Is it from Slade? Slade. <laughs> Slade or Jibber. Is it, from, is, it from, is it from Sliver, Jade, or neither? This is the quote. Hey, isn't Pearl Jam some sort of oriental sex thing? <laughs> if they weren't both written by Esther Haas, I would have a, an easy answer for you. Uh, I'm going with Jade on that one. Sliver. Really? Yeah, Why is it always Sliver? sliver? I know. Because it's a better script. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, As that line proves. <laughs> all right, uh, Rachel, this is for you. This is another quote. Okay. Uh, sliver, Jade, or neither. Crystal. This is, I can't. This is, I'm going to try to get through this. Okay. Uh, Crystal. 
Beluga, Wolfgang Puck, it's a fuckhouse. <laughs> Is it Jade, Sliver, or or uh, neither? Um, <laughs> neither? No, it's Jade. Oh, I really thought you made that one up. I'm, I was complete, really I'm completely in your head now. I would, if I could, only, I would not have this job if I could make that up. I would be a, I would be a highly paid Hollywood screenwriter. I think I need context for that line. <laughs> no, well, you have to see the movie. It's really boring, actually. I don't even remember that line. Uh, okay, Keith, this is a tough one. Thank God, because you're way ahead. Which movie made cuts to avoid an NC-17 rating? Jade, Sliver, Neither, or Both? I vaguely remember Jade making cuts to avoid NC-17. Is My it, answer is Jade. It's both. Oh, okay. How about All that? Right. Yeah, both both were on that edge, as they say. Do I lose a point at this point? Nope. No, okay. Nope, you're still up. Two zip zip. Tasha, are you ready? This is another quote. This is, again, the options, Jade, Sliver, or Neither. You've been spending too much time with your vibrator. I certainly have. I've been... <laughs> I certainly have. I've been getting a plastic yeast infection. <laughs> please tell me you made that up. I hope, I hope Scott that you made that you, up. Is that your answer? I'm saying, no, I'm saying please tell me that you made that up. I mean, for one thing, that it, that it uh, you know, give me an easy point because I'd know the answer. <laughs> But also, I just want to—I want to think that 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 kind of thing goes through your head sometimes, Scott. Nope, that's sliver. That would be sliver. I did not make that up. That is why a, ever not. No, I know, I know. I, well, again, I would be a Hollywood screenwriter if I came up with the phrase <laughs> "plastic yeast infection," but I did not. Um, Rachel, is yeast plastic? Oh, that would not know. have been my actual just, answer, I, by his, the way. His, uh... I, I was—I was in fact messing with you, but my answer would have been Jade because my answer is always Jade, and it's always sliver. <laughs> and always wrong. Uh, all right, Rachel, this is you. Which one was Robert Evans, the legendary Paramount honcho responsible for The Godfather, Rosemary's Baby, and Chinatown? Which one did he produce? Jade, Sliver, both, or neither? Jade. Both. Both. Can you believe that? Outrageous. (laughs) Outrageous. You don't hear hear about that and the kid stays in the picture, do you? All right, so 2-0-0. I think Keith almost pretty much has this wrapped up because this is the last round, but I think we should just keep going because there's a lot of fun stuff here. Oh, Keith. I've got a quote for you, man. Okay. I, and you might have made this one up. Slade. Slade? Slade. Wait. I keep saying Slade. <laughs> Jade, Sliver, or neither. Okay. She is a beautiful woman, but when this trial is over, <laughs> you will see her no differently than a gun or a knife or any other instrument used as a weapon. <laughs> do I get a bonus point if I can tell you that that is from Body of Evidence? <laughs> you do. That's exactly right. <laughs> Wow! Yeah, body of evidence. I just cannot. That's that's been my default choice for this whole thing. Yes, it is. It is neither, and in indeed, body of evidence. You can get a, I can give you a point because you're already winning. He gets two points for that. Uh, all right, this is to you. Oh, a tagline, Tasha. Are you ready? You like to watch, don't you? Really? <laughs> um, body of evidence. No, wait. What are my choices? It's, Slade, Jiver, these movies sli- you keep making up. Sliver, Jade, or neither. Sliver. Correct. Definitely Sliver. That was the big. That was a big line. You remember that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Hey, Rachel definitely remembers. It's, I it's, totally it's just, do. It's just unfortunate. That was a crazy time. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> How old were you in that year? Like ten. In the year nineteen ninety three. Okay. Um, all right. This is to Rachel, right? This is a tagline. Uh, uh, Slade, 
<laughs> Sliver, jade, or neither. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, sex this good is murder. <laughs> wow. Um, jade. Neither. Ugh. That's from Indecent Behavior, which is, uh, which is uh, one of the Shannon Tweed uh, basic instinct knockoffs. I'm not even, I can't even make these up. I'm not trying. I've got, I've got actually just one just sitting here. Okay, we're going to do this. Just, this is going to be a buzzer because we got one, one stray clue uh, left. Uh, this is a tagline. Is it Slade, Jiver, Jiver? <laughs> now who is in whose head, Scott uh, Tobias? Is it Sliver? Is it Jade or neither? Okay, tagline. Some fantasies go too far. It can only be one of three options. Who is the rooster? I'm the rooster today. I'm going to, since we've already had uh, Sliver and none of the above, I'm going to go with Jade. Correct. That's good. Good process of elimination, Tasha. Scott, I'm so disappointed in you. You you did you did these two movies and not a single mention of penetration pillows or jars full of pubic hair in Jade. I mean, like, how how could you even? I don't remember any of that. Uh, that's the only thing I remember about Jade. Okay, no, that's not true. Hysterical blindness. There, what I remember most about Jade is, is my wife telling me about one of her most uncomfortable viewing experiences was watching that film uh, with her parents <laughs> nice oh <my> God. <laughs> uh yeah that will have to we're gonna just we're gonna bank that for another topic most uncomfortable movie we watched with our parents no. all right next, uh, that that will be on podcast number 39 this is podcast 37 uh thank you uh keith the winner uh tasha and rachel And now we've reached 30 seconds to sell. We're in person A. Tasha Robinson. In person B. Keith Phillips. Have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, whatever. Who's ready to go first? Tasha Robinson? Yes. Yes, I am. All right. Three, two, one. Go. I'm recommending Adam Rex's The True Meaning of Smek Day, the book DreamWorks recently adapted into the animated film Home about a little girl looking for her mom after aliens take over Earth. The book isn't necessarily better than the film, but it's richer, more internal, and more idiosyncratic. There's more strange detail about alien life, less toilet humor, less sentiment, more specificity, less cutesiness, and more character. It's pretty hefty for a kid's book at 400 pages plus. It's entertaining throughout, and I'd recommend it for, say, dads with grade school daughters who might like to read adventures starring brave, smart, creative girls their own age. Wow. The, the pandering just gets worse every week. Uh, uh, and she was way under. Oh she doesn't get gosh. points for being under, though. That's, that's... Eh, we'll see. No, but, you know, if you blow it on the time, that's yeah, that's you know. always... that's all, I, I'm, I'm reaching for the trophy right now, wow. Keith Phipps. All right. Well, this is... Uh, I'm going to have to throw it to Keith here in three, two, one, go. I've also got a book. It's called Orson Welles' Last Movie, The Making of the Other Side of the Wind by Josh Karp. Short version of the story is that Orson Welles returned to Hollywood in 1970. He decides to make a movie about a director who returned to Hollywood in 1970 to make a comeback film and he can't, he spends six years shooting it in his house in Arizona all over the place. Everyone's there. John Huston stars but he doesn't show up until three years after they started filming. Rich Little's in it. All kinds of madness. Uh, Cameron Crowe apparently was in it at one point uh, and he never finished it and it's, it's an amazing story oh uh right okay so everyone's good on time everyone's good i'm, I'm actually gonna ask a, a quick follow-up question Ooh. to tasha how how much of a how, how how much better is this book than than the movie home 
Um, well, I mean, as I said, it's you not... You said not much better. It's not significantly better. It's different. It's a different experience. I mean, uh, you know, Home is a very visual movie in some interesting ways. Uh, it's also a little bit corny, but it's very sweet. They do some interesting mm. things with it. I'm yeah. going to demand a follow-up question, too, and it's in the interest of fairness, because that is actually an addition of time. So please, ask me a question as well. All yeah, right, well... Ask him whether it's better, this book is better or worse than Orson Welles' movies. Well, no, I, I, this, this was a clarifying question because I'm going to give this to Keith. So I get more time, but you get the trophy. I thought the movie Home was not good. And, uh, and the gap between book and, and movie would have to be quite large <laughs> for me to be seeking out the book. So I'm going to give this one to Keith. Fair enough. All right. Thank you, uh, Keith and Tasha. That does it for episode 37 of the Dissolve podcast. Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy The Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. If you have any questions or thoughts, email us at info at And if you'd like to share any stories of uncomfortable viewing experiences with your parents, leave a voicemail message at 773-234-9730, and it may be included on a future podcast. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve the Hurricane Kosky, with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And no, Pearl Jam has not been an oriental sex thing since the early 90s.